I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy it. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club. This time it is episode 9, and we're discussing Paul Anderson's Three Hearts and Three Lions. My name is Jeff, and with me is the lovely and talented Hoy. Hello. Always glad to be here. <laughs> hey, hello. Uh, so, yeah, we are reading Paul Anderson's Three Hearts and Three Lions. This book originally came out in 1953. The paperback version that I read was published in 1978, and it has a Wayne Barlow cover. And Wayne Barlow is this really fantastically talented artist, does this very strange kind of like dark biological science fiction art, really stunning, gorgeous work. But this cover was must have just been a paycheck because it's just kind of Holger Carlson riding a horse, the sword in the air, but it kind of looks like he's like flying through the sky. Right. It, it, no, no opposition, no threat, nothing. Yeah, it's it's a pretty uninspiring uh, it's a pretty uninspiring cover and I would say that in this situation you can judge a book by its cover. Uh-huh. But what does the back cover say? Does it does it draw you in? Is it a is it a bill of goods or is it The Sword and the Spell, a near miss on a modern battlefield and Holger finds himself no longer a soldier but a knight at arms, exiled to an eldritch realm of sorcery and magic where a bloodsome war is gathering. The enchantress, Le Fay, would have his sword for chaos. The swan may would have him serve her gentler kind. At first he denies them both to find out how to, tr- how to return to reality, but the chill of his knowing is like a cold wind through his ribs, for it was earth that was his exile. It is here, in the lowering dragon smoke, that he must fight and die." Eh. I mean, I guess it's technically all true, but... It, yeah. So, uh, what leaves you sort of uh, lukewarm on this one? Or do you want to summarize a little bit, Pris? Okay, I guess we can quickly summarize. You know, Holger Carlson is fighting the Nazis in World War II, suddenly wakes up in uh, fantasy gets, Denmark. Right, gets hit in the head with a bullet or something like that, right? Something. It, yeah. Yeah. Fantasy Denmark. Wakes up in fantasy Denmark, and uh, he finds uh, some armor and a horse and... He decides to put it on and get on the horse, and on his journeys, he meets Morgan Le Fay and a Swan May and a dwarf, and they go and they fight chaos. Right. It's um, I understand why they have a framing device, but somehow it doesn't, you know, reek of adventure when he when he lands in this alternate universe. I guess so quickly. He's a man. He's a Danish, I guess, engineer, sort of jockey, not particularly thoughtful person, at least in the real world initially. And he's in the Danish resistance fighting the Nazis, and suddenly he wakes up in this world, uh, and he just goes with it. He doesn't see. He doesn't. He realizes he's in a different world, but he's not sort of thunderstruck that he's in this different world. Mm-hmm. So maybe right there, that sense of wonder is not there. Yeah. At the very beginning, and yeah. then maybe that sets the tone for the rest of the book in some sense. Yeah, and before we discuss this further, let's quickly go over our high Gaxian word of the day, and today that word is. Decibel. Decibel. 
And deshabille is a word that means the state or being dressed in a casual or careless style or a deliberately careless and casual manner. And it is used in the book on page seven. Uh, and it says, if he'd been stripped and left here by his comrades, there must be a good reason that he shouldn't wander off, especially in this state of Deshabil. Hmm. And this is, uh, he's already landed in uh, this uh, fantasy Denmark, so to speak. Yeah, this is when he just kind of wakes up and he's like, huh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm naked. I don't have my clothes on. I, I guess I'm naked for a reason. Yeah, he doesn't seem, yeah, he's very incurious. I mean, eventually, you know, accepts the world and, and rises to the call of adventure, but he's very incurious as a character. Yeah. I think my problems with this story is we have characters who don't seem to have any depth. We have um, a story that's really lacking in adventure and motivation. Also, we go from adventure to adventure and encounter to encounter but it never feels like it's going in a direction or building on anything. It really just kind of feels like it's a, like a random roll on the encounter table one after another until finally we get to the very end of the novel. Because, uh, you know, with, like, with, with The Hobbit or with... Um, what's another example? I'll stick with The Hobbit for now. You know, yes, you're constantly encountering a new set of dangers along your path to the end of the story but it at least seems like they're serving the story and building towards something greater. Every little encounter here just kind of felt like it was just another kind of detraction from where he's trying to go. And even that's not clear. Where is he trying to go? Right. It's picaresque without being particularly picaresque, if you will. Yeah. What did you think? Um, you know, I didn't hate it. Uh, I'm, I'm always, you know, interested to read it, but it was not uh, energizing yeah. is the word I would use. Um, it's clearly, as we go through it, we'll see that it's, it's tremendously influential on Dungeons and & Dragons and other fantasy fiction. Definitely. Um, and maybe it's, uh, you know, <clears throat> got there first, and that's kind of what's important. Although, you know, it kind of reminds me a little bit of, you know, um, a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court in some ways, you know. He's, sure, he's, and he whole, even references it in, the, in right, the in the book. Right, he's an engineer. He's, he's very sort of pragmatic Dane without... Um, you know, and he's a big, burly, strong guy, but he just doesn't, you know, and, and he has a sense of right and wrong, more or less, but he just doesn't strike me as a, um, you know, when he's going into the call for adventure that it, it like, opens up his soul and mm -hmm. says, oh, here I am, and this, yeah. you know, this is my destiny. Even though the whole book is about him rediscovering his uh, mystical identity and, and his role in this, you know, universe, mm -hmm. it doesn't, just doesn't strike me as that. And I would, like, I would like to quickly say, because you said that you didn't hate it, and I want to make it clear that I also did not hate this book. I, um, I'm very happy to say that so far in the reading that we've done, I have yet to encounter a book that I hated. And I would even say that this book isn't bad. It's just, in my opinion, not good. And we've encountered so few of these so far, and I've enjoyed reading the books that, I've been, that we have been reading so much, that I just find it disappointing when I encounter one that really doesn't live up to the level that we've been encountering so far. Sure. It is a relatively quick read, so in between everything else, I mean, I wouldn't rush out to read it unless you are, again, doing like us, looking for the sort of literary roots of various D&D tropes. And, and if you're looking for that, that, this has it. This in... is in, in spades. I mean, this is very, very deep. Mm -hmm. uh, and possibly one of the more influential, or most, I don't know, but sure. top 
five most influential books on Dungeons and Dragons? Possibly. Yeah. You know, we'll ask us again in you know yeah. another couple of years when we've read <laughs> <laughs> everything. But I imagine if you did right. put together a top ten. A, a, a list of the top 10 most influential books, this book is probably on that list. Yeah. You know, we can always take uh, good stuff even from the less um, successful fiction. But, uh, you know, again, this is not unsuccessful. It's just sort of maybe a little flat by yeah. by today's standards. It um, is. It's it's a little stale. Hmm. Oh, I guess before we get into gaming, was there, I, I was about to dive right into alignment and things like that, but I guess there, there might be more, more to talk about here I before mean, we do there, that. I mean, there's a lot to... Unpack is not the right word, but there's a lot of influences here. So yeah. this is, um, uh, we already mentioned Connecticut Yankee King Arthur's Court. So he, mm-hmm. he lands in a, a sort of very high fantasy, classical high fantasy universe. Yeah. You know, he meets Morgan Le Fay, and the elves that he meets are clearly weird, dark elves. They're not drow in D terms, but they're not, uh, you know, they're not Tolkien noble beings of, of intrinsic good. They're sort of selfish and capricious um, very seductive, but they're more in line with sort of classical fairy um, as, it, as uh, it was known in, you know, throughout uh, European mythology. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of very interesting mythological creatures in here. There's strong callbacks to uh, Song of Roland and what's called the Matter of France, which is sort of the body of uh, medieval French legend. Uh, I would admit that I have not read those in sort of, you know, Penguin classics or any other forms, but there's, you know, callbacks to the story of Roland and Charlemagne. It, although it's an alternate universe, uh, plays off on a lot of tropes of medieval legends. So we have, uh, you know, Saracens, you know, so the Turks, we have elves, we have dwarves, we have uh, various other creatures, you know, that are more classical, and then some that are uniquely D&D, and I'm not sure if they were uniquely influential in D&D, and I'm not sure if that's how they were originally portrayed in myth, such as what we'll talk about the troll later when we get to that point. Mm-hmm. So, um, again, it's a rich vein for your gaming, um, but as a story, it just doesn't, to me, have that much velocity, even though it's a relatively short short book. And what's also apparent to me while reading this is that Paul Anderson must have read the Harold Shea stories. Because reading this, I am seeing so many echoes of the Harold Shea stories. Um, and this was written after the first few had been published. Mm-hmm. After the first three or so, because mm-hmm. it was in 1953, and mm-hmm. it was in the Fantasy and Science Fiction magazine. Yep. And then it reached its final form in book form in 1961 as a hardcover and then yeah. later on paperbacks. So if you bear with me for a moment, you know, you have a protagonist who um, is a very capable young man who travels to another to another world, a world he travels from our world to a world of kind of fantasy. And in that world, he meets a highly competent woman who he teams up with and falls in love with and goes on adventures with. They travel in and around the land of fairy. And at one point, he disguises himself as another person for a large portion of the story uh, to hide his identity. Um, and all of these things are all things that happened in uh, it happened with Harold Shea. All right. Would you say it was influenced by the Harold Shea or because it's drawing on the same sort of body of material of European legend? You know, I mean, I'm not as familiar with I that, imagine as I should be. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it 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 gets close enough to the Harold Shea stories that I would imagine it's less about similar sources and more about he read the Harold Shea stories and was very inspired by them and wanted to kind of do his own take on them. Right. And in turn, 
he became quite influential on Michael Moorcock and others with his depiction of uh, later on we'll see law and chaos mm-hmm. and, and such. Um, but um, yeah, and I, you know, he's in my mind. I know he's got a strong uh, body of fantasy fiction, but Paul Anderson in my mind always calls out science fiction to me, and it's okay. very. Uh, you know, later on, I guess we'll be reading some of the Ensign Flandry books mm-hmm. and, and some of his other stuff that's set in his sort of science fiction far future, um, which were also enormously influential on the, the Traveler role-playing game, mm-hmm. uh, which is not the subject of this podcast. But, um, you know, never know. Uh, if we uh, survive this project, maybe we'll do a Traveler project. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um, so in my mind, I always associate him with a sort of science fiction universe, although if you look at his body of work, he actually is enormously influenced by sort of Nordic legend and Nordic myth, and he started producing sort of more realistic Viking stories sort of later on in his career. Hmm. Um, So there was a strong appeal to him. He was a uh, Danish-American who was initially raised in the States, and then uh, when his father died, he returned to Denmark and was raised there until the outbreak of World War II. So it's definitely interesting. So it's something that's in his blood, but his, I think that, Paul Anderson just strikes me as sort of very pragmatic Midwestern Scandi- of Sc- Midwestern or Scandinavian descent, so that sense of wonder does not just flow through him the way that some, maybe some of the other authors that we have read. Yeah. Um, and, and, I, and I'm keep on I keep on saying this, and it sounds like damning with faint praise, and maybe he's just not in his wheelhouse. And this is a relatively early work for him, also. Mm-hmm. So I know it later on we'll be reading the Broken Sword, which people speak very highly of. Yes. Uh, among other works, so we're we're still in we're still in on Paul Anderson. We're not out on him yet. <laughs> sure, sure. And also, while you were talking, I just remembered another parallel, which is that not only does he travel to another world, but he travels to a world with the core assumption of how to speak that language and notices that disconnect there. Um, but aside from that, yes, this is the only Paul Anderson that I've read, and I will say that I'm not terribly impressed with what I've read so far, but I have heard that he is a really great author, and I'm super excited to check out his other stuff because I'm ready to have a different opinion on him. Because, um, again, this isn't bad. This just was very uninspiring, and I thought a pretty mediocre read. Right, right. The most, the most interesting stuff about this read was seeing the direct ties from it to... Dungeons and Dragons. Dungeons and Dragons. Sure. Yeah. Having said that, what are the things that jump out at you in relation to Dungeons and Dragons or fantasy role playing in general? Well, very clearly the alignment system. And um, I have a little passage here that, um, that we have about the alignment system. On page 22, it says, A perpetual struggle went on between primeval forces of law and chaos. No, not forces exactly. Modes of, exi- modes of existence? a terrestrial reflection on the spiritual conflict between heaven and hell? Humans were the chief agents of earth, on earth of law, though most of them were only unconsciously, and some, witches and warlocks and evildoers, had sold out to chaos. A few non-human beings also stood for law. Ranged against them were the whole of Middle World, and Middle World was like fairies and trolls and giants and elves and stuff. Now, it's interesting that there's a law and chaos dichotomy, but there is no room for neutrality in it. Yeah, there's no neutrality. There's no good or evil. Uh, And it is interesting because we talk about, we often talk a lot about OD&D, but it's important, I think, to remember for us that the Appendix N was not included in the 1974 original three booklets. The Appendix N was included in Gary Gygax's 1979 Advanced Dungeons and Dragons Dungeon Master's Guide as literary influences and includes titles that were published after 1974, after the publication of 
the original versions of Dungeons and Dragons. And the alignment system here of law and chaos is the alignment system of OD&D, mm-hmm. of the original three box, of the original three booklets. Right. But the alignment system of Advanced Dungeons and Dragons was the nine-point alignment system. Yes. Right. Chaos. You have a chaos access, a law access, and evil neutrality. Um, yeah, so you can be lawful good, chaotic evil. Uh, obviously, that level of... Um, granularity. Granularity is not present in Three Hearts and Three Lions. It's the, it's it's, caver, it's chaos versus law. Right. And, and chaos is uh, attractive, but clearly depicted as basically antithetical to human existence and human morality. Exactly. And humans are, by their very nature, lawful in this story, in, 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 in this universe, uh, which is interesting because that is not how humans are portrayed in any version of Dungeons and Dragons. Because um, in this one, it's humans are lawful except those who are traitors to humankind who are warlocks or sorcerers. In Dungeons and Dragons, a wizard is not necessarily a traitor to humankind and is not necessarily chaotic. And your random, you know, Mr. Joe Average with his um, blacksmith shop isn't necessarily lawful. He could very easily be chaotic evil. Right. It's definitely a uh, cosmic matter rather than a behavioral matter. Uh, Although people who most exemplify law would be good, so to speak, Mm -hmm. right? Or lawful good for that matter. Um, But the fact that almost all humanity is quote-unquote lawful clearly indicates it's it's cosmic. It's not, um, you know, your neighbor down the street. Mm -hmm. You know, he plays his radio too loud at night. He must be chaotic, you know. (laughs) Exactly. And I can, on some level, I can buy into that as a concept, Mm -hmm. you know, because what other creatures on this earth um, build roads and houses and create literal laws that they follow, you know, that's not something that you see. I mean, yes, beavers... Or chew down chew down trees to make dams, but they're not, as far as we're aware of, creating complex societal rules that they have to follow that are punished uh, if they're not followed correctly. So I can get behind the idea that maybe humans are, in the cosmic sense, lawful and gearing the universe towards kind of an organized set of principles. Sure, and the elves in the story are chaotic, mm-hmm. and they have some of their own. Um, uh, conventions, but their society is really a reflection of the current human society. They mm-hmm. have knights, and they have ladies, and they have castles, so they're, in some sense, not creating anything original. They're reflecting it through a dark mirror, so to speak, uh, yeah. you know, the human the human level of society and consciousness. So um, you could certainly argue that, that law is, 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 in this case, creative as opposed to um, stultifying, right, mm-hmm. or limiting. Uh, and that chaos is so intrinsically chaotic that it can't create anything uh, original, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't have enough structure to create anything original or lasting. Yeah. So that's an interesting uh, way to play with alignment. Um, you know, and again, that, that nine-point AD&D uh, uh, alignment structure um, seems to be more behavioral than cosmic, although there it are, does. you know, planes for each of those alignments. Um, and... In one sense, it's a good guide for for or giving you a hook for role playing, but it also feels like it could be shackled. So you always say, "Oh, well, your character wouldn't do that. He's lawful good. He couldn't do that." Yes. Right? Whereas if you say, "Character's lawful," 
It doesn't mean that they obey every single law or they don't, you know, they always look both ways when they cross the road, but that in some cosmic sense, they stand for human order, human existence, as opposed to these other creatures that are, you know, pure energy or spirit or whatever it may be. So, mm -hmm. um, so that's useful. Um, so we've got alignment. And with alignment, we have the paladin, I think. Oh, well, yeah. I, I would like yeah. to stay on alignment for a sure, moment. Sure, absolutely. So let's talk about Nazis. <laughs> and uh, the reason I bring up Nazis is, you know, the story starts off with Holger is in World War II and he's killing some Nazis. Right. Because that's what you do right. when you see a Nazi, you, you pull out him. your gun and you kill them. That, right. That's that's yeah. what you do with a Nazi. Right, right. And he's in the Danish resistance. Yeah. Exactly. And in the final part of the book, the book ends very abruptly. Uh, Holger suddenly realizes who he really is and then just as suddenly is back in the real world fighting Nazis again. And um, By the way, it's implied that he's smuggling out uh, which of the famous uh, physicists? It was one of the very famous physicists who was, would have helped Germany build a nuclear bomb. Okay. It's, it's, it's implied that that's his mission. Okay, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. go on. And one of the things they mention is that the war of law versus chaos is also happening in our world and that the Nazis are the force of chaos, which I find fascinating because often Hitler and Nazis are used as examples in the nine-point alignment system as um, examples of lawful evil. So here we have our kind of go-to example for lawful evil being described as the go-to example of chaos in our world. So I don't know, do, do you have any immediate thoughts on, on that um, seemingly, um, seemingly oxymoronic. Sure. Um, I think the way you square that circle is again, to understand that chaos in this case is cosmic and then lawful evil. Although there is a plain, you know, the nine hells are lawful. Lawful evil is a behavioral characteristic in AD&D. &D. So mm -hmm. the Nazis are very organized, mechanically efficient. And that, so that's the lawful aspect. And what they're doing is clearly evil. So that's lawful evil. Mm -hmm. Um, but in uh, sort of law, pure law, chaos dichotomy, they stand for the destruction of human order, human mm -hmm. decency, mm -hmm. you know, anything that is uh, a real social contract. Yeah. Right? And, and like literally tearing down cities. Right, and... right. So in that sense, they are chaotic. They yeah. are not, they're anti-human. So therefore they are chaotic. Yeah. So, um, so you know, it's when you try to reconcile those two things, the, the simple law of chaos versus the D&D nine-point alignment system. That's mm -hmm. when you have the problem. I don't have a problem with it in the book as it's depicted, right? It's yeah. clear they are chaotic. Um, and that it's implied also that, you know, uh, there's a, you sometimes hear that phrase, you know, lawful lawful good doesn't mean lawful stupid, mm -hmm. right? So Holger Carlson is clearly a man of action. He's a man of war. And he recognizes that, you know, this thing needs to be done, mm -hmm. right? Um, he's not brutal. He's not sadistic. He's not petty. But he is capable of great violence when it serves the greater cause that he identifies with. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. So uh, I, I, I don't know... Um, why Gary Gygax felt it was necessary to go to a much more complex alignment system in Advanced Dungeons and & Dragons, and, and if he had meant for it to be purely more behavioral, or if he was still thinking of it in cosmic terms when he created for AD&D. Um, but it's obviously caused no end of arguments and misunderstandings in the last <laughs> 40 years or so. Sure. Um, in terms of, you know, at the table. So, so alignment has been with us from the very beginning, and is still with us today in our hobby. And I don't know, do you feel like it's serving us? Um, 
I think it depends. Again, I haven't played any of the recent versions of Dungeons Dragons. But you uh, played Dungeon Call Classics. Dungeon Call Classics. We have alignment in Dungeon yeah, Call Classics. I think, I is think it, it serving us there? I think it does. Um, it serves us in, again, I always mention back to Lamentations of the Flame Princess, mm-hmm. right? Uh, clearly serves there almost where it says that 99% of all people are neutral, but mm-hmm. magic is inherently chaotic, so magic users are chaotic. Mm-hmm. And then uh, clerics rely on a higher authority. It may not actually be true divinity, so that's they're lawful. And then everybody... In, Everybody else in between can be neutral. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he says that everybody in, who ever existed in real life has been neutral because mm-hmm. we don't have these cosmic forces in James Ratchie's mind. Um, so um, in Dungeon Call Classics, I think um, it's it's it works. It's pretty useful there. I think it's sort of somewhat dependent on the game master to decide what chaos and law means to them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's implied that chaos is tends more towards anarchy and selfishness, but doesn't necessarily equate with evil 100% mm-hmm. in DCC. Uh, but law is pretty much clearly good in DCC. It's not, you know, it's not uh, rigidity and, and uh, you know, authoritarianism in DCC, although there are lawful thieves. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like it can be. Yeah. I feel like you can have, um, I feel like there's definitely space in Dungeon Call Classics for oppressive law. Right. Well, I think there's the white space there for you to do that, and and that's the appeal of DCC. There's a lot of white space for you to work with. Yeah. But in the text itself, I don't see it saying, like, oh, law, it can also mean, like, I'm very, you know, stick in the mud, Mm -hmm. you know, so I think there's plenty of room for you to do that, and there's nothing to stop you, and and they would never stop you from doing that. But I don't think it's saying in DCC itself, you know, rules is written, that, you know, um, law is, you know, it has this uncool aspect, so to speak. So. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So we can talk about paladins now if you'd like. Uh, so sure. Uh, the paladin as a class is clearly example, and you know the term paladin had been used in reference to the Knights of Charlemagne. Um, so uh, Holger Carson comes to exemplify, you know, ninety percent of what the paladin class eventually would be portrayed as in Dungeons and Dragons, at least in Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. Mm-hmm. I think the only thing he's missing is his lay on hands ability, or maybe I missed that somewhere. I don't um, think he did do any laying on <clears throat> hands, but I do have a great sentence here that describes what a paladin is. Sure, absolutely. On page one oh five, a warrior whom God gave more than common gifts and then put under a more than common burden. Mm-hmm. Um so he has a great great responsibilities he's able to sort of protect from evil but when he starts having sort of impure thoughts that his ability to sort of create the sphere of protection from evil you know vanishes mm-hmm. um he's just a man with a war horse he doesn't have any like material goods other than his armor and his in and his weapons and his horse he uh yeah he's clearly ultimately on a mission even if he's not sure what that mission is mm-hmm. and then we ultimately find out who he really is do we want to talk about that now or sure. yeah so it's ultimately revealed that he is Ogier the Dane, one of Charlemagne's knights, um, and that he had been cast out of this fairy world because he had been given amnesia, you know, he had been, Morgan Le Fay had ensorcelled him and he had amnesia and he had been cast into our more mundane world. You know, they've been missing this champion of law and the chaos has been on the ascendance since he's been cast out and or asleep for these many, low these many years. It's not made clear to uh, the reader to what extent time differs between, you know, if there's any specific ratio of how much time differs between this fantasy world and our real world, unlike, say, Narnia, where, you know, it's like, you know, some ratio of, like, you know, 30 days for every day that's there in Narnia. But he's clearly, this conflict that's happening right now, he hasn't been gone away for so long that people don't remember who he is, you know, when he's ultimately revealed. But, 
you know, he had, a ch I think, a childhood and grew up as a normal person in our real world. So there's that. There's a rival Saracen warrior, but he's also quite noble. And that's um, Karahu, is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. And um, so, yeah, we have the paladin there. It's no, no hands-on ability, no explicit spells, but there is the ability to pray and protect people from evil. And everybody seems to have the ability to turn unholy. Right. So, um, no, granted, I'm using a Dungeon, Dungeon Crawl Classics term because in original D&D, it's just turn undead. Right. And there's no examples of turning undead in this story. Um, but there are examples of turning unholy. And in Dungeon Crawl Classics, turning unholy just means turning away creatures that are repellent to your god. And in Three Hearts and Three Lions, there are multiple examples of being able to make creatures from the fairy realms uh, cower and uh, flee from the names of Christian saints. Right. And uh, it is made clear that not all fantastic creatures are of chaos or fairy, but they're also not 100% of law just by their nature. So mm -hmm. he's, his companions are uh, Hugi the dwarf, mm -hmm. who's a different take on the dwarf. He's definitely not a Tolkien-esque dwarf. He's a woods dwarf. He's a woods dwarf with a sort of Scottish accent, you know. Yeah. Uh, or maybe that's Alianora. Alianora has more of a Scottish accent. She's, she's... Either way, they both have these really obnoxious accents. Dialect, yeah. It's... Yeah, because the way it's written, it just it makes it really hard to read the text when either one of them is speaking because it's so full of hyphens and ellipses and <laughs> sure and um alianora is a swan may she, she can transform with her feather cloak into a swan form mm -hmm. and, and the swan may first appeared in the um in the second monster manual uh -huh. um and i i you know they're in again uh you know uh, medieval European legend, although I couldn't pinpoint at this moment the first appearance of the myth of the Swan May. Um, yeah, they should be more appealing characters, but again, because of the dialect, it's a little hard to read. You know? Yeah. Uh, you know, there, there's nothing offensive about them characters, and Hugi has some interesting traits that we don't necessarily associate with dwarves. He's almost a little bit more like a D&D halfling in some senses, you know? Okay. He's sort of the companion. He's not a miner or gold, you know, that mm -hmm. kind of... Um, he can sniff out and track people by smell, and he's, mm -hmm. he's at... at at ease, moving through nature. And despite their pretty annoying dialects, I would say that actually Hughie and Eleonora aren't terrible characters. They do have some fun aspects of their personalities. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think uh, they're, they're, they're fun and interesting companions for, mm -hmm. for Holger. And, and Holger, again, is still a little bit of a blank slate, you know, as he's moving through this world. You know, he's again, he's very pragmatic and, you know... He um, was faced with the dragon. Said, hmm, this dragon is like a giant boiler. What if I just throw some water down and stuff? <laughs> you know? And that felt so cheap to right. me. That was a little. Um, and then he's messing around with the. Well, uh, let, let's explain that for a second. Sure, there. sure. So there's a moment where they encounter a, a really fearsome, traditional Dungeons and Dragons style dragon. Like this is a. Is it even red? I think it's even red. Yeah, it's definitely fire-breathing. It's, it's a not... fire-breathing dragon. Yeah, it's, it's like 50 feet long and scaled and winged, and it's breathing fire. Uh, and Holger, being the incredibly clever person he is, takes his, his helmet, Hel yeah. fills it full of water, and tosses the water into the gullet of the flying dragon. And as the dragon is flying away... It dies because... It's basically a steam explosion. It's basically this yeah, boom. it's basically a boiler explosion. Yeah. So apparently if you throw a bucket of water into a, into 
a super powerful dragon's mouth. That's all you need to do to kill it. Right, right. Now, is it the giant that he is worried about when it turns into stone because it emits radioactivity at that point? Is it... Yes, yeah. that happens as well. Because yeah, yeah, when 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 they're um, there, because there's these there are these rumors that the that their gold is cursed. Right. Because uh, it's we have another example of creatures who turn into stone by sunlight. And it, and then he tries to explain it scientifically because it turns out that it's actually the radiation from the transformation from flesh to stone. Right. He's riddling with the, with the giant in that scene. It's at night. He can barely see the giant. Actually, that's a quite... Um... The first appearance of the giant is actually very well done. It feels very threatening. It makes, you know, people just think of giant as like, you know, an eight hit dice or greater monster, right? You know, <laughs> but this is actually a pretty scary giant in some senses and, and not uh, very brutish, but not stupid, the giant. And comes in to riddle with them in the dark. And then I guess he delays the giant long enough so that it's the sun rises and turns into stone and in that process. That seems familiar. Right. Just vaguely familiar, except a little <laughs> short guy. Um, <laughs> And um, although we don't want to credit that too much, although I, he, it's, I don't know if he read The Hobbit. It's, it's a strong possibility. But again, The Hobbit was only available in hardcover uh, in the States until the mid-60s. Um, but, you know, the, the trope of riddling with the, you know, that's as early on as, you know, the Greek myths and stuff like that. But nonetheless, that's, uh, again, he's applying some scientific knowledge. And I don't, feel, I don't know if that's just uh, something that Paul Anderson felt would be fun to do you say oh you know he when he turns a stone you know the natural process of you know transformation there's going to be extra isotopes blah 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 or if Paul Anderson was just so sort of pragmatic that he couldn't get out of his own way uh-huh. in a sense and so had to make it have sort of a semi-scientific basis even though he's writing essentially high fantasy and what's funny to me with situations like that is like if you're going to do that you should be doing that with everything you know, your character should constantly be seeking a scientific explanation for all that's happening. And he, he kind of seems to do it selectively. Right. The only thing I would say to that is that possibly, and I, I haven't read this for a while, so I don't remember if he starts out completely scientific and then slowly becomes more and more imbued with myth and legend as he starts to sort of recover his identity and sort mm-hmm. of starts, stops processing things in sort of mid-20th century technological terms. So there would be a certain logic to that, but I can't, I don't have enough of the text in front of me to trace it through completely consistently to say if that's the case, you know, on a, on a scene-by-scene basis. Fair enough. Uh, it's not like it's so clever, like, again, in Connecticut, Yankee and King Arthur's Court, where, as you say, every scene he's applying a technological solution in a fantasy world, and it's not really the root of this story. So it's sort of like, eh, it's a little bit more uh, flavor, but it ultimately doesn't add that much to the story when he does this stuff. Yeah. Um, and speaking of fearsome giants, yeah. what about the troll? The troll is a fearsome creature, and it's easy to forget, you know. But the troll is pro- should should can and should be one of the most dangerous creatures, I think, in a Dungeons and Dragons derivative game, at least for mid to low level characters. Um, and it is clearly the monster manual troll is the three hearts and three lions troll. Absolutely. Uh, Here from page 152, it says, He was perhaps eight feet tall, perhaps more. His forward stoop, with arms dangling past thick, claw-footed legs to the ground, made it hard to tell. The hairless green skin moved upon his body. His head was a gash of a mouth, a yard-long nose, and two eyes, which were black pools, without pupil or whites, eyes of which drank the feeble torchlight and never gave back a gleam. So here we've got the giant, green-skinned, long-nosed troll. He stinks to high heaven, and he regenerates. 
Right. Uh, so the only thing he doesn't have is this sort of mossy green hair that he's drawn with in the Monster Manual, but pretty much everything else. It's, it's literally the, Dave, I guess, Dave Sutherland illustration. From this the, was an older one who yeah. had lost his moss green hair. There you go. He, he didn't have hair club patrols yet. Exactly. <laughs> My favorite moment, because I mean, the, their battle with that was really wild. Yeah. And one of the few moments where I actually like had like genuine joy reading this story was at the very end of that battle... So they've now chopped up the troll to the point that all that's left is the torso. And now they're like fighting off like the intestines that are like like shooting out of the torso. It it felt so Evil Dead to me. And I sure. wasn't expecting a little moment like that. Evil Dead a, reanimator. Yeah, kind of, exactly. Yeah. From, a, from, a, from a fantasy novel from, from the 1950s. Right. I wasn't expecting that. And that was fun. Yeah, it was fun. Although it was not ultimately... It, it was fun. It was tense. But it was not ultimately horrific. That's the way true. I say... Um, you know, some of the scenes in Burroughs that we talked about with, like, the Mayhars are or something. Yes. Right. Um, That's a good point. Yeah. Also, I would mention that that is the scene in which Hughie gets his mortal injury. Mm. And one of the things that I've noticed doesn't happen much in the Appendix N is you don't often experience the death of protagonists. Sure. At least so far in our reading. In fact, I think Hughie might be our first... First companion to die? I like, think. our first, like, yeah. Like, he's not the star of the story, but he's, yeah. one of, he's one of the main characters who's on the side of good. Perhaps I'm forgetting somebody. Oh, of course. The, uh, people died in The Hobbit. But you don't you don't encounter a lot of a right, lot of, and, and it wasn't really the named characters like, other than Thorin. But I was gonna say Thorin died. Yeah, yeah. So we have encountered it before, but it's pretty uncommon. But one thing that I thought about while reading Hugi's death is Hugi got his mortal wound, but then was able to deliver his dying his last his last words his dying breath dying statement his, yes exactly. And it's got me thinking that the next time that I run my Dungeon Call Classics game and we roll, we do a roll the body check and the person fails, maybe instead of just saying, oh, yeah, we rolled you over and uh, your face is completely gone. You're just a pile of you're just goo. a smush pile of red goo. Maybe instead saying your your wound is absolutely uh, injurious yeah. and, and mortal and you're not going to survive. Do you have any final words right. to give to right. your companions yeah. and give the person that kind right. of fun role-playing right. experience sure. of like saying like, you know, oh, please, yeah. like say goodbye to my mother for right. me or something like right. that. Exactly. Tell mom I didn't cry. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. I feel like th- that, that's an opportunity I have as of now robbed my players of that I would like to in the future give to them. Right. Um, you know, and sometimes, again, the velocity at which you play doesn't give you time to think. It's like, oh, you know, that would be cool. Right. Let's let's do that. Oh, um, yeah. There's, you're juggling so many things at the right. same time in your mind. I'm not actually like giving myself a hard time for not having thought of that before. But that's precisely why I do things like read these stories and listen to podcasts like this. It's like I hear people come up with ideas that hadn't occurred to me or I'm inspired by something that gives me a new idea. Right. And I can use that in my games. I think that would really be appropriate for a campaign play with any character that's been played for a while. Yeah. So give them a, a final moment. And then maybe there could even be some sort of mechanical benefit where, you know, they could bless the survivors or, or give them a point of luck. You know, if you give a really good speech to, like, the survivors or something like that, you know. Um, or at the very least, if you ask for something specific and then you're other other characters go on an adventure to do that or a quest to do that, then rewarding them for that in some way? Absolutely. Right. right. Um, 
so yeah, I think that would be uh, a really great thing for any kind of character that's been lived in a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I wouldn't say like every time a character dies, oh, do you have any last words? But I think it would be um, a lot of fun with, you know, we get so invested in some of the characters that we've created. And especially with, um, and invested not in the sense we talked about in one of our earlier podcasts from like the point builds, something like that, but yes. invested through play mm-hmm. with some of these characters that it, 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 we should give them a cool scene yes. before they go out, no matter what what it is. You know, maybe it's not the speech, maybe it's just whatever their literal last action was, but it should be cool. Whatever mm-hmm. care, you know, it could be comedic, it could be horrific, it could be whatever, but give them a, a, a one last moment of cool in some way. Yes. Right? Um, yeah, yeah, I think there's that. And, you know, and, and again, I, I did ultimately like, quite like, um, Mugi, Uji, and the dwarf. Hugi. Uh, Hugi. Hugi. I did ultimately quite like him, but as you said before, it was just kind of difficult to sort of cut through the dialects and I'm, I'm not a fan of heavy dialect in li- really any writing mm-hmm. you know let alone fantasy writing yeah know, so and what's kind of amazing is just the sheer quantity of things that we find in this story that i mean we even though this is not one of my favorites this is one of the least favorite stories i've read so far i mean i feel like we could have like a three-hour episode just on the gameable material or or let me rephrase that. I feel like we could have a three-hour episode just on the things that were taken from this and put into the game. You know, because in addition to the things we've talked about, there's also uh, demon summoning. There's the swan mate. There's uh, wood, wood dwarves and mountain dwarfs. You've got goblins and unicorns. We have elves and dragons and werewolves. We have a wizard who has an invisible servant. We've got that awesome scene with the Nixie. Mm-hmm. Do, let's talk about the Nixie. Okay, I'm not, I quite, don't quite remember that one. I remember it was in the water. He gets under the into the water and starts breathing yes. water. Right, right. Yeah. So basically, he's uh, he steps away from Hugi and Eleonora and his horse Pepion. And for a, I'll take a quick tangent and say that Pepion the horse, uh, it's just a horse. Yeah. However, Papillon's personality does come out. I actually feel like Papillon is one of the better written characters in Three Hearts and Three Lions. And it reminds me that in my gaming, I think that the, the, the mounts should have names and should have personalities. And I I know that I would like to set an intention of making them more, um, right. A horse is not just a horse, not just a a hay powered bicycle. Absolutely. Thank you. Yes. So um, that said, the Nixie is this woman who uh, lives beneath the sea, or lives, lives, I'm sorry, lives beneath a lake. And Morgan Le Fay has asked her to trick, uh, to trick, I almost said Hugie, to trick Holger. Uh, and that's, we have Hugie and Holger. Right. The, the, the names are a little too similar. Right. Uh, but tricks Holger into coming to the water's edge, and then she basically pulls him in, and she's like keeping him under the water. And he manages to use trickery to get himself out of here. But like uh, he, but if 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 he hadn't outsmarted her, basically he just would have been her like sex slave right. at the bottom of the lake until the war against law had been uh, won by chaos. Because right. just... Morgan is con- Morgan Le Fay is convinced that right. the chaos will win as long as we can just put Holger out to passage out, out to pasture for a little bit. Right. And actually, all the chaotic females like Holger because the uh, the elven ladies at the court initially uh, yes. tried to seduce him as well. Um, oh, and can I say, I know I've read a lot of quotes from this book today, which is funny from a book that I'm not that inspired by. However, because I clearly am inspired by it in, in, in some way, but one of my favorite sentences in the entire book is on page 50, and it's in reference to the elves, 
And it says, Holger didn't feel like an orgy, but he had no way to refuse. <laughs> it's true. It is very rude to refuse an elves an orgy. There you go. Just remember that. When in elf land, do us the elves do. Absolutely. So if you're looking for gameable material, you can <laughs> insert an invitation to an elven orgy and know that it's very rude to turn it down. Right. Only a dwarf would do that. <laughs> for the record, I think including elven orgies in your in your games might be a little awkward, so I actually personally do not uh, recommend including uh, that. Uh, certainly not in an open table where the, you know, in your, whatever what you do in your own campaign setting is your business. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, I liked also the uh, encounter with the elven knight that turns out to be an empty suit of armor, or is that right? Or something, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and at first I misunderstood what was happening there, and I don't know if it was intentionally misleading, or if I'm dense, or if it was poorly written. However, at one point he, like, attacks the armor and then sparks go flying, and but it made it sound like he had like the sword had gone into the armor and sparks were flying. So I thought he was fighting a robot. Mm-hmm. And I was like, why is a robot here? Which I kind of thought was cool and then seemed strange. But then after the combat was over, we discovered it's just an empty suit of armor. So I was very confused by by that. Hmm. Uh, I didn't get that take, but I did think there was some intelligence behind there. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, when they find that out, it's just an empty suit. And then I think later on, it's implied that, you know, the elves, again, again, can ape and mimic, but they're clearly nowhere near as strong, as physically strong as Holger. Yeah. Um, you know, that whatever they can do is sort of a reflection of true humanity mm-hmm. rather than a thing of its of its own merit and substance. Yeah. Um, so that's an interesting thing to play off of. And I am definitely a fan of this kind of elf as opposed to the Tolkien elf. And I haven't read King of Belfon's Daughter yet, and I'm excited to the point where we get there. But I And I know that that kind of exemplifies this particular brand of elf. But I have read... Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. Yeah, that's which one of is, my favorites as well, too. Oh, my God. It so is so good. Creepy and alien elf. Absolutely. Sure. And and that's the kind of elf that I feel like fits into the kinds of worlds that I like to both judge in and play in. Because the, the Tolkien elf that's like, you know, writes really beautiful poetry and has like long shimmering golden hair and crafts really lovely swords is not particularly interesting to me. And I think that's specifically why Gary Gygax put level limits on elves, because otherwise everyone would just want to play the elf. Mm -hmm. You know, because the elf in D&D, as written, is more of a Tolkien elf. Absolutely. It it Um, really is. And it's almost like, you know, if you play Star Trek, everyone wants to play Spock, right? Mm -hmm. Or have all Spock's powers, but without any of his limitations. Yeah, I get it. I like like the elves to be sort of alien and odd and dangerous. And I think that's a um, currently sort of... recurring theme, I don't think, in a lot of the OSR, that people are moving away from the sort of high fantasy superhero elf yeah. to something a little bit more odd and alien and, and trying to recover those roots. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think uh, when we had Gavin Norman on, he was very specific to talk about looking for that in his sort of forest you know, setting, in the Dolmenwood setting. Yeah. Um, so I think there's a lot to recover from there, and, and that the elves are quite capricious. Not necessarily evil, but whatever their motivations and how they see the world is is quite alien. Mm-hmm. And I, I like to play with that. And that's also in my games. I don't have any starting elves. And I think some of our fellow members of the DCC uh, NYC group are saying, yeah. yeah, you can't start with any elves. So elves will come into play, but mm-hmm. there's no elves that, you know, they're not common things that just, you know, just guys who, you know, you interact with guys or gals that you interact with on a daily basis. Yeah. So, yeah, I, 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 I agree with you. I like that sort of more alien, odd, 
you know, just slightly off, whatever it is that you want to, however you want to portray them. And I think that was also Gary Gygax, maybe he felt the same way, he didn't express it the same way, but when he created the drow, mm-hmm. that was again to sort of recover the idea of like the unsealed court, this sort of, you know, dark, you know, moonlit mirror image to sort of humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that was, um, it spoke to him also, but he was, I think, maybe already saddled with sort of the Tolkien elves. And, sure. And, um, and uh, I said, we've, we said this before, you know, he has said that Tolkien was not a heavy influence on Dungeons and Dragons, certainly not structurally, but mm-hmm. they were there from the very beginning in Chainmail, all the sort of Tolkien creatures like halflings and, and um, hobbits in that case, and ants. And so I think he obviously knew. And, and even the Nazgul, like he right. flat out and calls Balrog. them Nazgul and, and Balrog. Balrog right. Yes. <laughs> um, sorry, certainly... If it was not an influence, he was certainly aware of, from a market point of view that yeah. anybody who wanted, and this was the very first fantasy game, that anyone who wanted fantasy with the popularity of Tolkien would want to be able to have the trappings of Middle-earth. Yeah. Um, and, and so it's so, to his credit, sorry, it's to his credit that he gave us all these other trappings and influences the Moorcock, the Paul Anderson, everything else that's in Appendix N, you know, mm-hmm. that he didn't say, set out to create the Tolkien role-playing game. He didn't mm-hmm. set out to say, you know, play, you know, Hobbits and you know hobbits and orcs or whatever you might call them. Yeah, so, so. <laughs> Absolutely, and it seems like it's it's kind of funny. This to me is starting to feel like the opposite of our Hobbit episode because on the Hobbit, I started off talking about how much I loved the Hobbit, and then by the end, I was just being super critical of it. And this time, I'm starting off by talking about how how unimpressed I was with the story, but I keep bringing up more and more things that inspired me about it. So I'm going to continue that path and say that another part of the story that I found really fun and exciting was the demon summoning scene when he first meets... One of the first people he encounters is this witch. I forget her name. Right. She's one that gives him the beer or something like that. Yes, exactly. he, He comes into her home. She, like, witches up some beer... And she keeps, like, telling him, like, oh, don't worry, this is all white magic, it's all white magic. Well, maybe gray. It's maybe gray magic, but it's, it's, it's mostly white. Yeah. And uh, she's like, but just sit there for a second while I summon this sprite. Sprite. Right. And then this sprite, who's actually a demon named Samuel, like, she summons him. And, uh, and I just really thought that, like, the, the, the scene was really fun. I love, like, little moments of demon summoning in general. Right. Uh, but it was it was done in a kind of very fun and wild way that I thought worked as well. Mm-hmm. And I, I think we could do, and I think we'll discover a lot more examples of this as we work through our way through Appendix N. But I think we could do more with making demons um, not just, like, you know, evil, evil, but kind of cannon fodder. That they should be genuinely uh, imperiling our uh, characters, not just on a physical level, but on a metaphysical level mm-hmm. when they appear in our stories. So um, so I think that the, going back to Appendix N, and we see that, oh, okay, there's not just some extra planar being that has horns and is scary, right? Yeah. There's, there's something more to it than that. Yeah, and they don't just have to be like Cenobites from the right. Hellraiser story either. Like they can also be kind of funny or kind of um, kind of strange or, because even like Samuel, like he's like, he's like this strange little being. He's kind of more like an imp in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know, like it doesn't always have to just be like sheer terror every time. Like there can be other... I mean, they're obviously always evil right. um, and obviously forces of chaos. Uh, but there are other ways that you can present them. Right. They should always cause trouble in some sense, even if it's not, you know, physical peril. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. We've talked about sometimes it's stuff that is so well crafted that it's hard to extract stuff from. And this one is sort of more like you can almost see where the pieces are fading together. So you can pull one out and mm-hmm. use it and pull this other piece out when you use it. Right. If you're looking at Tolkien, you almost have to take the whole thing. Right. And here's like, and we ended up taking 
almost all of this anyway, but you can sort of reconfigure it in all these different useful ways mm-hmm. and without saying, oh, it's not true to the work. Whereas if you start messing around too much with Tolkien, then it's you know, becomes a poor copy. It becomes the Shannara books or any yeah. of the other extruded Tolkien, you know, Tolkien copy products, uh, products from the, you know, the mid seventies onwards, you know, maybe our problem or lack initial lack of enthusiasm for this thing has not so much to do with it on its own merits, but maybe because it is so present, you know, all the, the tropes and stuff has been so present in our sort of consciousness through playing D and D and other things for the last 40 years that, sort of the oddity and edges and the pioneering aspects of it sort of got filed off mm-hmm. a little bit and sort of rounded a little bit. And so we're not seeing it for what it is yeah. 100%. And maybe this is this is what this project's for, is for rediscovering those things. Sure. Yeah, so. And it would be interesting because I'm, I'm curious if we had Gary Gygax in the room right now or better yet, if we were sitting in the room in 1979 with Gary Gygax while he's writing this, I would be curious to know, is he including Three Hearts and Three Lions because there was just so much gameable material in it? Or did he also really genuinely love this book? Mm. Um, I'm curious. Uh, and it doesn't really matter, but it's just something that I that I wonder. Mm, that's a good question. Um, and it also would be interesting at what point he encountered this book, mm-hmm. you know, in his reading career. Did he encounter it in the early 50s when he yeah. was, a, you know, uh, I guess a teenager or adolescent and it just stuck with him? Is it something that he came upon later? Like... If I had read this in the mid-60s at the same time as I read, you know, the Michael Moorcock books or Tolkien at that point, I'd be like, I'd be happy that there was more fantasy. Mm-hmm. But side by side by side with that stuff and the re-released, you know, Robert E. Howard books and stuff yeah. like that, I'd be like, man, this is pretty good. I wouldn't be like, whoa. That's yeah. a good point. You know, yeah. it's like I grew up watching The Last Unicorn. Mm-hmm. And man, I loved that movie as a little kid. But like, you know, I'm 37 years old now, and if I were to watch The Last Unicorn for the first time today, I have a feeling that my affections for it wouldn't be as strong as they are having watched it so much as I, as I did as a child. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, certainly we have a lot of things that we have affection for that are not necessarily intrinsically or objectively great. Yeah. Um, and again, I, I kept on saying this, we're not in any way, you know, consigning this this book to the dustbin because there's so much in it absolutely and if you are interested in the literary roots of dungeons and dragons pick this book up because there's a lot of a lot of that in here and you know we we do need to wrap this up soon there are a lot of things we didn't get to discuss you know um uh alienora with her uh the swan may the reason she's a swan may is she has this magical swan dress right right and that's why she's a swan may right we have uh we have um cortana the named magical sword we have this dagger of burning we have this moment where he's so excited um that he can't even feel any pain while he's in battle you know they talk about luck and like minor flesh wounds and i've got so many notes here from that we could just continue to talk about this for uh, a whole other episode if we wanted to but right. we're not going to uh but talk to us about it Send us an email, appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. You can hit us up on Twitter at appendix underscore n. Uh, also, uh, our episodes are on our website along with extensive show notes. That's appendixnbookclub.com. Uh, am I missing anything else? Nope. That's... I would say that also if you want to join us in real life, please feel free. If you live in the New York City area or you will be in the New York City area, you can come on by to Mia's Bakery and hang out with us and uh, meet meet up and discuss some books with us. If right. you go to meetup.com slash DCCNYC, you can join the meetup group. 
And also our next two episodes will be on Roger Zelazny's Jack of Shadows and then John Belair's The Face in the Frost. Very cool. So we'll see you in the stacks. Read on. Read on.